18 as well. So hear God's word. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He, w- he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands, will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now skipping down to verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and how rich it is with truth. And we pray that you would encourage us now as we study your word and speak to us words that we need to hear to build up our faith, to strengthen us, to draw us close to you. Um, I pray uh, for those who are here that uh, may be discouraged and uh, may your word strengthen their faith. Call us to trust in you, to turn away from dependence on ourselves and to rest in your unfailing love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, uh, we're looking at this amazing story where Jesus is transfigured before some of his disciples, and they behold him in his glory. And, you know, one of the greatest promises that the Bible gives the people who belong to Jesus is that the Bible says that Christ will be formed in us. What does that mean, that Christ will be formed in us. Well, I think one thing that it means, at least, is that our inner life, right, our thoughts, our emotions, our motivations, our imaginations, all the things that are happening in our inner world, 
will become like Jesus in her life. That's an amazing thought, right? To think that your thoughts and your emotions, the way that you emotionally respond to things, that you could start to emotionally respond to things the way Jesus emotionally responds to things, the way your, your, your imagination, the way you're motivated in your life beco- could become like Jesus' imagination, is quite amazing. And, um, but uh, one of the questions is, what is Jesus' inner life like? What is his thought life like? What are the, the thoughts that are ringing and resounding in his head and in his heart? Well, um, in this passage, we get a look into Jesus' inner life. And I'll tell you a little bit what Jesus' inner life is like. Um, you know, in C.S. Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia, the seven children's books he wrote, in the last of those books, it's called The Last Battle, at the end of that book, there's this part of the story where the main characters of the story go into this, um, this little stable. It's like a little old hut. And when they go into the stable, it turns out that inside the stable, there is this whole world inside the stable. And uh, let me just read you a few lines from the story. This is what it says. Turian, Turian's one of the main characters, has just gone into the stable. Turian looked around again and could hardly believe his eyes. There was the blue sky overhead and grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction and his new friends all around him laughing. It seems then, said Turian, smiling to himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory, its inside is bigger than its outside. Kind of amazing thing. The, the stable, inside the stable is a whole world. On the outside is this shabby stable. Well, in Matthew, it is, is it, in, this part, in this story in Matthew, it is as if Jesus' life is being turned inside out. And, you know, so far in Matthew, we've kind of seen, you know, Jesus' outside life. You know, it's a fairly modest, right? He's homeless. He's from Galilee. He's kind of backwoods part, you know, uh, part of uh, the ancient world. Um, you know, he died as a criminal. Actually, uh, Isaiah tells us that Jesus was not partic- particularly good-looking. You know, there's nothing about him that was attractive about him. So he's not, he's not the best-looking kind of guy. So on the outside, he's a very modest person. On the outside, he's like this little shack. But on the inside... Jesus is this vast and beautiful, imaginative world. There's so much life there. And um, what you see in verse 1, you see what it says, that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up, on a, on a, up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And, you know, the, this word right here that's uh, used for he was transfigured. It's the Greek word that's uh, metamorphothe, which, you know, it's where we get the word metamorphosis. And it's like that what we've seen before is kind of Jesus the caterpillar. It's kind of modest. And we're getting a glimpse of Jesus the butterfly, you know, in full glory of who he is. We're getting a glimpse of that. And when we see Jesus' inner life, it's like, wow, this is who he is at his core, the inner reality that's happening in his mind, in his emotional life. What do, you, what do we find there? What do we see? What's the thing that's resounding inside of him? It is a father's love for his son. It's a father, a voice, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. At the center of his life is relationship. At the center of his life is sonship. Being a son, a child of God. 
And this is a, pr- a profound thing, in which um, we are going to study this. We're going to talk about this morning because one of the things that the whole gospel is about, that the main thing that Christianity is about, is that Jesus wants to share this inner life, this, this relationship, this sonship with us. He wants to b- bring us into it so we can share in it with him. And um, what are the qualities of being God's sons? Well, there are three qualities that we see in this passage we're going to talk about today. This is what they are. God's sons are delighted in. God's sons are sent. And God's sons are free. Three things. Delighted in, sent, and free. And it's this, this kind of motivations that are living inside of Jesus that he wants to share with us. Now, let me just say before we get started, you know, some of you gals may say, oh, this is a sermon on sonship. What about daughterhood, right? It's kind of male sermon. You know, but actually one of the things is the Bible says it's very egalitarian on this point where it says that both men and women are sons of God. And the reason for that is because in the ancient world, the sons were the heirs of the inheritance. And so it says that the men and women who belong to Jesus are joint heirs together. So you actually want to be a son of God, and you are a son of God. And, you know, just so you know that it's fair, the men are also called the bride of Christ. So it kind of goes both ways, okay? The gals are sons of God, and the men are the bride of Christ. So here we go. So three things on sonship. The first is this. God's sons are delighted in. That's a mark of being a son of God, is you're delighted in. And, you know, in this passage... Peter, James, and John, they have this privilege to go up on the mountain and they see Jesus transfigured. They have a, a glimpse of his glory. And it turns out, if you caught that in there, up on the mountain, there's a couple other people up there also, uh, Moses and Elijah. And you might wonder, you know, what are Moses and Elijah doing up on the mountain? Well, you know, a couple reasons for that. One of the reasons is, you know, as you look at the story, they're going up on a mountain and there's this cloud up there, and the voice of God is speaking, and they're falling on the ground terrified. And actually, if you know the story of the Old Testament, this sounds a lot like Mount Sinai. When Moses went up on the mountain, there was the cloud of God's glory, and uh, God's voice spoke, and all the Israelites were trembling with fear. And what's happening is Jesus is the new Moses. He's like a second Moses is coming, and, and that Moses said that there was going to come another prophet like him, And yet also in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, it also says when the new age comes, when God's kingdom comes, Elijah is going to come first. And you might have caught that there in verse 10. You look at what it says. This is when they're coming down the mountain. The disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. So these two people, Moses and Elijah, they kind of represent the coming of God's kingdom and the coming of the new age. But you know, also, actually, Moses and Elijah both had kind of unusual ends to their life. Moses, you know, went up on a mountain somewhere to kind of die with God, and you know, they never knew where his body was. And so it was kind of, what happened to Moses? Where did he go? And then Elijah, if you know the, uh, this story from the Old Testament, he was taken up by a chariot of fire, and he swooped up into heaven. And so he never actually died. He was just taken into heaven. So here's Moses and Elijah. They, they live in heaven. And so what's ha- and heaven is the place where God lives, where God's life is. And the disciples are getting brought into heaven to kind of see what it's like there. And so it says then in, in verse 4, uh, uh, Peter speaks. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, Peter has he's been speaking a number of times. A few weeks ago, 
He was the one who said the famous saying that Jesus said, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and uh, Jesus says, Peter, this is a divine revelation that you've had. you've had. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. This has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. So it's just, Peter's the hero. And then the very next scene, he rebukes Jesus. You know, it's a bad idea to rebuke Jesus in general. And so uh, Jesus calls him Satan. And it's kind of, you know, hero to zero in just two paragraphs. And so now Peter is going to talk again. And this is what Peter says. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here kind of funny, all right, we got all the important people, you know, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, us, we're, the important people are all here, good that we're here, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, one for Elijah, and so Peter says, I'm just going to be the tent builder up here, but then Peter is interrupted by a voice from heaven, now in the Bible, when there's an actual voice from heaven, it's actually kind of a rare thing that happens, it, it means something important is happening, it's an important moment in this biblical story. And here a voice speaks, the voice of God. And this is what they heard. Look at verse 5. Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Here we look into the inner life of Jesus, what his life is like. And what do we find there? We find a father who in front of these witnesses, in front of these, you know, these well-respected men, Moses and Elijah and these disciples, says that he takes pleasure, he delights in his son. God's sons are delighted in. He delights and he takes pleasure in them. And, you know, of course, there's something unique about Jesus in this passage. Jesus is the Son of God, you know, capital S. He is God's Son. But um, you also notice here that God says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Which he's saying to the disciples, I have something with this Son, a relationship and now he is going to share that with you. He's going to tell you about this. And he's going to bring you into it because he wants to share in this delight that I have with him so that you can have that as well. And so listen to him. What I give to the son, he now gives to you. And um, that he is beloved by God, that he is a delight to God. This is something that he intends to share with us. Now, I want you to think... Um, about what it's like when someone has that is the dominant voice in their inner life is a father who delights in them. You know, you have all kinds of things that are kind of happening in your head that you're thinking about that are kind of spinning around and shooting around in thoughts and ideas about yourself and about people and about relationships, all kinds of stresses. What if the dominant thing that's happening in your mind, in your heart, is the voice of the father's pleasure? And, you know, I think that actually... Pleasing another, pleasing someone else, is one of the experiences of the deepest fulfillment and satisfaction in human life. Um, you know, you see this kind of most innocently with, with children and, and that they desire to please their parents. And that's a good thing. They want to please their parents. And they want their parents to, take, to be happy with them, to be glad with them. But, you know, it happens in other parts of the world, you know, where, or other parts of life as well. You know, I think when I was in graduate school at uh, Western, I was studying math. 
and my favorite professor there, his name is Bronco Churgis. He's just the best math name ever. Is Bronco Churgis from Bosnia. And he just made me fall in love with math. He was very animated. And every math problem was like a story. And all the numbers and symbols were all characters in the story. And he had these colored chalk. It was all colorful. And he was funny. And I just, I loved, you know, listening to him. And so he became my advisor. And when I would come into his office... And I'd have something I was working on, and I could see that he was starting to get excited. That was really fulfilling, right? I was, wow, I'm making you excited? Like, you're the master, and I'm, you know, and I'm making you excited about math? That's deeply fulfilling, right? That I'm actually giving you joy. You know, it's not just humans, right? You know, some of you had dogs, right? Dogs love to please you. And that's a part of their, you know, almost joy or fulfillment. And this is what God wants to have with us is that we know what it's like to please him. That this is an amazing thing that if you belong to Jesus, the beloved son, you become a source of God's happiness. You become a source of happiness to God. Can you imagine that? That God looks at you. He's not ashamed. He doesn't want to turn his face away. But he actually takes pleasure. And when we're all gathered together right here, and he knows all the things that we're struggling with and all the problems we're having, he likes us. He likes us in his presence. He's pleased with us. And that's an amazing thing. And I know, you know, for some of you, even me saying that, it, it can't penetrate. You say, I, I just can't even believe it. I, I just don't even know what that's like to get someone else to be pleased to me, let alone God be pleased to me. And I, I look at all the things that I struggle with. I look at the sins that I struggle with. I look at all the goals that I'm not meeting in my life. I look at how other people seem to not like me, or whatever it is. Whatever is it about you that says, this is, I just can't even receive it. I can't even feel it that that would be true. How could that be true that God could take delight in me? Well, of course, the answer is the gospel. God delights in us through Jesus. That the perfect, delightful, lovely life that wins God's approval, Jesus lived on our behalf. And that's the, that's the life that God, God celebrates. And the displeasure that, you know, turns God's face away, Jesus took that displeasure for us on the cross, so there's no more of it. And so when we come into, G, when we have faith in Jesus, he shares with us his status as God's beloved child. And what that means for you is if you... Let me say this may be a hard way to say this. If that's hard for you to receive, and you say, no, you know, I need to get my life together more. I need to be a better person in order to receive that pleasure. I need to earn that pleasure. That's pride. God wants you to receive his pleasure as a gift through Jesus. And you receive that gift with a soft heart that says, I'm willing to embrace it. I'm willing to just believe it that God delights in me as a free gift. And so he wants you to receive that this morning. Okay? So the first thing about being a son is this great thing that God's sons are delighted in. Okay? The second thing, though, we see in this passage is that God's sons are sent. They are also sent. And, you know, what that means is you might think, well, if, uh, if God delights in me, then, you know, he's just only going to bring kind of happy, comforting things into my life. You know, it's just going to be, it's going to, things are going to go easy for me. 
And he's not going to bring hard things into my life. But actually, if you notice here, you know, in verse 5, where it says, you know, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. That's actually a quote from Isaiah 42. And if you know those chapters of Isaiah, they're called the servant songs. This is what Isaiah 42.1 says. Listen to this. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. So this, is, this was an ancient prophecy talking about the Messiah who's going to come, who's God's servant. And it's God's servant is the one that he delights in. And, um, and in those servant songs, actually it's, it's the, the most famous Old Testament prophecy that Jesus would come and he would bear the transgressions of his people. He would die on the cross. This suffer. It, it's called the suffering servant. And so it turns out that the son that God delights in is also the, God, the, the son that God sends into the world to suffer. So to be delighted in and to suffer are not things that are mutually exclusive. They actually go together. And um, you see that this is what's on Jesus' mind. As soon as he hears these words from the Father, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, they're going down the mountain, and the, after this, this scene, and in verse 12 it says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they did, whatever, they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So God does not just simply delight in Jesus, but God also sends Jesus on a mission. He sends him into the world and um, this is part of what it means to be a true son, is that you're sent into the world. You're called. There's this whole act of obedience. It's a relationship not just of being delighted in, but also a relationship of obedience because I trust in my father. I obey him. And this is what fathers do. They send their children out in the world. Actually, you know, I remember uh, when I was 18, and I, I went on my first date with my wife, Shannon, which apparently, actually, I was the only one that knew it was a date. She didn't know it was a date. Uh, and I... Uh, we went and we played tennis together, and I, on my way to the day, I was going out, out of the door, and we were going to play tennis, and my dad said, hey, what are you doing? You know, I was like, oh, I'm going to play tennis with this girl. And he says, so what are you, you going to do after tennis? And I don't know, come home, I guess. He said, no, you're going to ask her to go have lunch with you. All right, okay, all right. You know, he said, you're going to do it. I'm going to ask you about it when you get back. So I go, and, you know, we play tennis, and, uh, you know, after we're playing tennis, hey, she in a good, good Good match. Hey, you want to go get some food? She said, oh, I have, a, um, I have a school project I need to go work on. I was like, oh, yeah, I, I didn't need to either. I didn't want to go to lunch either. So I come home, and I walk in the door, and, uh, you know, and my dad's waiting there. He says, hey, what are you doing? Why are you at lunch? And I said, well, you know, she had a school project to work on. And so I, you know, I go in the other room, and he brings a phone in and puts it on the table in front of me. He says, you're going to call her right now and ask her to lunch for tomorrow. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I just saw her 15 minutes ago. What are you, crazy? I'm not going to call her back again. She's going to think I'm nuts. Yeah, you're not leaving this table until you call her. And so I pick up the phone and, uh, you know, I say, hey, Shan, you, know, you want to go have lunch tomorrow? And she said, yeah, well, my mom will give you directions. You come pick me up. And I was like, you're brilliant. How did you know this? You know, I, there's no way I would have wanted to do that. I had no desire to do that. And yet, he told me to do it. Now, I should say, uh, she canceled later because she had a boyfriend. That was the right thing to do. <laughs> it's the right thing to do. But, you know, I got her in the end. So, uh, so my dad was right. And, uh, but this is, this is 
this is part of being a son. My dad, he understood the world. He understood girls better than I did. And he said, I'm going to tell you what to do. You won't want to do it, but, because, but it's because I love you. I'm going to tell you what to do. You won't want to do it, but it's because I love you. That's why I'm going to tell you to do it. And it's always, it, it, it is because of that delight that a father sends his son out into the world. And uh, I mean this very seriously, that our father, he owns this world. He understands this world far better than, than we do, and he delights in us. He's going to send us to do things that we don't want to do, that we don't want to experience. But it's because he loves us and because he cares about us. And good fathers don't coddle their children. And um, now, let me just say this, that some of you may say, you know, I, when you say this is what it's like to have a relationship with a father, I, I, I never had that. And so when you even use that word father, it brings up all kinds of ideas of what a father is that are not helpful for me. So how do I deal with that, where the Bible's using an image that we have tons of experience with in our life that may not be a helpful image. How do we unlearn that? And well, let me just say a few things about that, if, if that's you. If, if, it's, if it's a struggle for you to receive the delight of the Father, it's a struggle for you to, to be sent by the Father and trust in, in what he's calling you to in the world, that first of all, it's okay to acknowledge that what you experienced from a father was not right. There may be things that have happened to you in your family as you grew up that you need to face and acknowledge and say, you know, that's not what fatherhood and sonship is supposed to be. And of course, there's ways of doing that by where you still honor your mother and father. But you come to terms with it and you say that this wasn't right. And as you come to terms and you say, you know, this wasn't right, what that allows you to do is the second thing, is to realize that your earthly father is only a surrogate. He is there temporarily. He's supposed to teach you about what God's loving care is, what his protection is like, what his, you know, his leadership and his wisdom is like. And they, our, our earthly fathers do that well to varying degrees. But they were supposed to pass us off anyways to our true father anyways, to our true fathers in heaven. And our true father is good. He does delight in us. He listens to us. He protects us. He is not selfish. He's kind, and he can be trusted. And so what that means is for many of us, we actually need to hear from our Father who is God. Our Father is in heaven. We need to hear his voice speaking to us through his word, um, through the gospel, through Christ, and to retrain us on what it is to be a son, to be a child of God. That's where we need to learn it, is through the scriptures and in the church. This is one of the most essential things that happens in our sanctification, our spiritual growth, is to learn what it means to be a child of God. And what that means is that whatever you have learned from a maybe unloving, earthly father, that doesn't have to define you. Many of us have experiences that we've had with our earthly fathers that are def is defining us our whole life. And unless we move on from our earthly father, from the surrogate to the real father, those things will continue to define us. And so this is the third thing that we learn about sonship is not only that God's sons are delighted in, and then they're also sent into the world by a good and loving father. 
But the third thing is that God's sons are free. To be a son of God means that you are free. This is one of my favorite truths of the Bible. And, um, and you see it in this story. Verse 24 It says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. Now, what this is talking about was that there was an annual tax that the Jews in the first century paid to the temple in order to pay for all the sacrifices, the animals that were being sacrificed in the temple. And Jesus actually just a few chapters ago had said, Something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself, that he's greater than the temple. And so they're saying, well, if you're greater than the temple, do you have to pay the temple tax? And this is, this is what it says in verse, 20, uh, verse 25. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Sons don't pay taxes. They're free from the taxes. And what he's saying is, okay, you want to know who pays the temple tax? Well, who's the Lord of the temple? God is. And then and he's saying that his disciples, through him, are sons of the Lord. So the, the Lord doesn't tax his own sons. So they're not obligated to pay those taxes. And what this says is that the sons of God are indebted to no one. If you are a son of God, you're indebted to no one. No one's expectations can hang over you. No one uh, can lay their demands on you except for the Lord. And for many of us, you know, when we're saying that we've been, you know, living under our earthly fathers, have been defining us, for a part of our life, it means that we're living under their demands and their expectations. The sons of God are free from the demands of any man, any earthly man. We live in obedience to God alone. And this is why to be God's son is to experience a true freedom. Now, um, when you hear that, you say, wow, no one can make any demands on me, no man. I don't care what anyone thinks. I don't care about anyone's expectations. You might think that that leads you to mean, you know, well, I'm free. If I'm God's son, I'm free. I don't have to do what anyone tells me. But Jesus' answer to that question is actually more subtle. Look at what it says in verse 27. So Jesus says, you are free from the tax. However, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now when he says for me and for yourself, he's saying we're both sons. We don't owe this tax. And go to the, you know, you go get a fish and there's going to be a shekel. It's kind of a miracle where he's going to get this money. But you pay the tax. And Jesus says you don't owe the tax, but you pay it anyways. Why? It's because of love to not give an offense. And what the Bible says is that we are free from people's expectations and demands, but that doesn't mean we use that freedom to do whatever we want. We use that freedom to be free to love people and to be creative in how we're going to love people and serve others and give ourselves for other people. And this is the mark of freedom of God's sons, is they use their freedom. That's what Jesus used his freedom for, was to obey God who sent him and to love us. And so, uh, let me just ask you, this morning, 
Are you a son of God through the beloved son, Jesus? Do you have that status? Has it come to ring in your soul, in your mind, in your heart that God delights in you because of Jesus? And do you have a sense of purpose in your life that you are being sent by a father out into the world who's calling you to serve him? Does that define your life? And do you have a freedom from the expectations of other people because you are God's son and you live before him alone? Jesus invites each one of us into that status of sonship this morning, and we can only find it in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you deal with us so tenderly. We thank you for the, what good news we find in the gospel that Jesus' status as your beloved son, he wants to now share with us. He wants us to bring us into that life that you have. I pray for those who are here who find it hard to receive that love, to receive that delight, and they sense that they just can't believe it. I pray that you would give them faith, courage, and softness of heart to receive your gift to them. Do this by your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.